Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Yes, you are listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Um, first of all, to explain why my voice sounds strangely unfamiliar, because it sounds strangely unfamiliar to me. Um, I've spent the last couple of days uh, commentating and announcing at the Ultra Trail Cape Town, which is a uh, three-day uh, event, which over various distances they run around the southern peninsula of Cape Town, including a 100-miler, which is a hundred well, it's more than a hundred mile actually, hundred and sixty six kilometer uh, race is included in this ultra trail Cape Town. There's also a hundred kilometer, there's a fifty five kilometer, thirty five kilometer. So I spent about, I don't know, about twenty one hours on the mic over the last <laughs> three days. So I, that's what my voice sounds like it does. Um, so my apologies if I sound a bit weird uh, for, for the rest of the podcast and particularly with our interview, which we'll introduce to you a little bit later. But uh, Ross. Uh, how have you been? You've been travelling around a bit and uh, spending a lot of time on planes and hotels, haven't you? Yeah, I got back from London from that. Uh, we, we spoke in our last podcast about the concussion meeting that was in Amsterdam. I spent a week after that in London with the PRL doing some academy psychology support PRL? work. PRL? Premiership Rugby. Right. Yeah. Um, they're, they're developing a position around psychology support for academy players and I chaired a session and so on. Then I came back for about five days then I had to go back. There was a big shape of the game meeting where they got all the high performance directors and coaches, the CEOs of the major unions, referees, like big, like the, the, the key guys mm. in world rugby. And sadly, it is mostly guys. Unbelievable. Like there's no woman in there. It's, it's actually a problem. But... Um, it was a meeting over two days to discuss the shape of the game. There's this real tension between the spectacle of rugby and the safety. Yeah. And so I was there representing the player welfare side. Unashamedly, I say, listen, I'm here about player welfare. Mm. And of course I care that the spectacle looks good, but my priority is player welfare. The other folk, the coaches, their priority is winning, obviously. And then the media and the business folk, their priority is the product. And so there's this three-way tug of war basically going on and there is tension there it's interesting to sit through and hear other people's perspectives and how you know like we've got all these cards we spoke in our last podcasts trying to change behavior with cards they're saying that that's ruining the game we're saying unless you do that the game will be ruined by the le- by the safety yeah. thing so anyway it was a very intense couple of days and then i flew back a day later so that was my week was sitting on planes my back and my sinuses and i Anyway, it's, it's, it's the end of the year now, so we made it. I think it's one aspect of sports that I think we, we, we should probably look at at some point is that the impact of travel on world-class sportsmen must be enormous. I often think about those tennis players that travel literally to every part of the globe throughout the year, and that must take its toll on the body and yeah, the strategies. 
unless you're like a top 10 person with invites, you're not traveling business class, right? So you're in the, yeah. you're in the cattle class with me. And uh, it must be very difficult. Mm. I always just think about sure. the rugby days when South Africa used to travel to New Zealand and Australia when we were playing super rugby before we joined this new competition with, the, with, with England. But, you know, they, they were, there must have been a massive problem with just with jet lag and how mm. they cope with that. Yeah, big time. And, and there's, there's actually a lot of cool research. It would be interesting yeah. to look at. Yeah. When I was with the Sevens, we used to go, and I remember one trip was from here, Johannesburg, Sydney, Sydney, Auckland, Auckland, Wellington, play the tournament in Wellington. Then, yeah. So you get there like five days before, play the tournament. Then on the Monday after, fly right around the back end to Los Angeles, then to Vegas. And then you fly back via New York, literally around the world in two weeks. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't sleep normally for about two months after that. It's crazy. Yeah. My circadian rhythms were completely yeah. sizzled. So yeah, that's what you do in sports. Absolutely. And then, and then six weeks later, you start getting on top of it again. And now it's time to go to Hong Kong and Singapore. Cool. Let's mess it up again. So one of the things that caught my eye was actually something you sent me. We mentioned it very briefly after our last podcast off air, and we thought we'd talk a little bit about it. And it's kind of a bit dated, but I still think it's relevant, is that the New York Marathon this year, they were the first marathon, as far as I know, to have a separate prize category for non-binary athletes. And uh, you sent me a tweet uh, today from Mari Mucci, who's a very well-known commentator in the world of uh, marathon running, and she talks about how the prize money for the non-binary athletes had changed there were different changes to it. I don't really understand what these changes were, but one of the things, and it sounds incredibly un-PC to say this, but I'm flabbergasted to think that there is now a non-binary section because what stops somebody, and and maybe I'm erring here, but what stops somebody who is a reasonable athlete claiming to be a non-binary and taking home the $6,000 that the non-binary person that won a legal marathon? It, it doesn't make any sense to me because as far as I know, physiolo- physiologically, it is just an identification rather than a biological consideration. Yeah, and uh, I'm with you. So I'm not, I'm not interested in being PC, sure. though. I'm interested yeah. in being physiologically right. <laughs> yeah. And you say it's dated. It's dated insofar that the actual race happened about two and a half, three weeks ago, but the results keep changing. And this yeah. is the whole, well, it's not the whole problem, but it's one of the obvious predictions you'd make is how do you verify these results? Because it's basically a claim that a person has to make. And okay, they've said in their policies that when you enter, you have to identify your gender. And presumably there you tick a box online or whatever it is that says I'm non-binary and you make yourself eligible for this category and the money is not insignificant right i mean actually the money (coughs) relative to what the winners of major marathons make for sure it's 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 small but Mm. i mean this money here in south africa that would be your biggest races wouldn't pay out this much to win the whole thing (laughs) and so they obviously recognized some of the issues and they made a a 310 limit you had to break three hours 10 to get the prize money so you could be the fastest non-binary self-identified person in 31001 and you wouldn't get the money. Yeah. But what's happened is over over the course of the last two weeks, people who were previously listed as second then moved to third. And so they had to update the results, presumably because they found someone else yes. who claimed to be either before or after non-binary. And on the 24th was the last one. I think this is the tweet I sent you. Mara tweets, the non-binary results been updated again. Daniel Lemelman, 304.41, has disappeared from second, now listed 804th in the men's division. So he doesn't get the $4,000. Now Zachary Harris gets second, yes. winning 4000 for 309.41. So was, was the previous guy, did he not indicate it and claimed it after the fact? I, anyway, I don't know. But the, the whole principle 
of non-binary is that you just declare that you're not you don't want to be part of the men's or the women's race you want to be part of this new separate category now if you took at random and it would have to be random a hundred men and a hundred women the best man will be better than the best woman by 10 to 12 percent the 50th man will be better than the 50th woman by that same difference so the moment you create a category that ignores biological sex and allows only self-id you are by nature almost certainly going to select preferentially for males that's the problem. It's a discriminatory category and it's discriminatory against females because the man who comes 804th, okay, and he's now no longer second, but he was, Daniel Lemelman, runs 304, he's 804th in the men's race. Guarantee you 304 puts you way higher than 804th in the women's race. Yeah. So in order to be equal in a non-binary category, you have to be very good as a female and relatively mediocre as a male. Yeah. How, is, how is that possibly fair? It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can make the case that it's better than it's better than allowing males to enter women's races, <laughs> but but it's it's an arbitrary. You know, they might as well have categories next year for people wearing red shoelaces. Yeah, yeah. that's that's what they should do. They should say yeah. blonde hair, red shoelace category. Yeah, it, it it does. I wish I just could read. I've I try to look for some details here as to what the what the um, justification was it from the New York Marathon and it just feels to me like it's just you know it's obviously very PC to award these sort of things but there are so many I think on Facebook for instance there is something like 71 different um, categories that you can list there so why aren't there 71 categories at a New York well, Marathon can, once you start this you're going to start all sorts of trouble here correct why uh, Why stop ever and yeah, exactly. again I, there's no issue I'm sure you agree with me there's no issue with someone identifying as non-binary in their lives so, they can you identify sure. how you please mm. but when it comes to sport where the biological effects the physiological effects of biological sex are so yeah. profound and significant creating a category like this is just basically saying Mm. Here's another way for male athletes to win significant prize money. Yep. And unless you're an exceptional female, this one's not for you. Yep. But you can be a relatively mediocre male, and here you go. Here's 4,000. That's for second. 5,000. Oh, I think it was 6,000 for the winner. Because it's six. So it yeah. went 643. Yeah. I mean, it's just. No, it's. It's a category it's that it, it's a category. It doesn't. It doesn't by design exclude females because yeah. you know we <laughs> we said afterwards. Achera Stein came eleventh or twelfth. It was confusion. Uh, she she said eleventh, but actually she was twelfth. Yeah. See, she was she was forty five minutes faster than these non binary athletes. Yeah, forty yeah. minutes faster to come twelfth in the women's race. She got yeah. how much prize money? Yeah. Zero. No. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. she had her expenses covered. Yeah. So you can run a two twenty something. And get yeah. nothing, or you can earn a three hundred four as a male, and walk away with five six. Nah, come on. I know what I'll do if I was scared. Of it, you just it? declare differently <laughs> next year. You see, that's the problem. Like just enter, just declare it, yeah. and no one can ever challenge it because it's a self ID thing. You yeah. can't question it. They've, that's the rules of engagement are you never get to question someone's gender. Yeah. So then go and win the money. Yeah. Oh, it's, I'm anyway. sure we'll get a couple of uh, tweets about this um, from the certain sure. fraternities, but we'll see how, how mm. it, it goes out there. Anyway, so let's move on to our subject of the day today. And uh, we have a very special guest, uh, Nick Chad, who is the head of sports science and strength and conditioning at uh, the Portuguese uh, giant soccer club, Benfica. And uh, the great thing about Nick is that he's unique in the fact that he hasn't spent his whole life working in soccer. He's worked with Olympic athletes. He's worked in, uh, rug- in rugby as well. He's worked in Manchester City. And he works in a very specialized space in the fact that he looks after the very top end of the, f- of the, um, of the club 
at Benfica, but also looks after the overall club, which includes rugby at Benfica as well, and the juniors and the upcoming and the different teams within that uh, big organization. So Nick's a unique guy. And what I found about this discussion and the thing that I took out most from is an amazing amount of passion and respect for the abilities of the players that mm. he handles. I, I, he talks a lot about the fact that he's incredibly, he admires the, how good they are and, and how brilliant they are because he's a fan. You know, mm. he's a fan looking after the best players in the world. Yeah, and, and we've done a couple of these now with different experts in the science conditioning space in different sports. And almost always, in fact, every single time that I can remember, we end up talking about relational, emotional <laughs> aspects. And then I'm trying to pull it back towards, so let's talk some data and so on. But actually, th that's the stuff that really matters. And so when you hear that passion and the enthusiasm that Nick has for the players, I mean, at one point we ask him about data versus instinct, and you can hear his answer to that question. But it's that kind of, I want to know the person and I want to understand the player, and then I'll be able to give them the best advice. And the data matters, no doubt. Mm. And I'm fully invested as head of sports science, which is what he is. But I'm actually there because if I don't have relationships and trust, then like all that data becomes potentially very, um, not meaningless, but actively harmful. Yeah. Very interesting always to hear that. So. So just just yeah. to uh, just to give you some background uh, for those who are listening to our podcast, I know that Ross watches a lot of soccer socially and that sort of thing. But I, it's one sport that I really struggled to get my head around How's the over World the Cup years. Going? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the point. I mean if you if you ask me how the World Cup's going now, I wouldn't know because I don't watch enough football. Yeah, and I keep on calling it soccer. Um, <laughs> and and I and it's one sport that I've always struggled with purely because maybe I don't understand it as much. I think I struggle with the histrionics around yeah, the sport, um, which I think most people do. And I think you know the fact that you get you know one goal can change the game and the fact that you can dominate but then potentially lose kind of goes against my ethos around sport i think the best person <laughs> should win um but i mean ross where, where does your football knowledge passion where, where does it sit when i was very young football was my my first sport i mean I, that you know when i say very young i'm talking before i even got to high school mm. I used to love it i was obsessed collected all the stickers and Kept league tables every week. Did you have a team? A, yeah, well, my dad's team was Tottenham, and mm. I liked Liverpool back then. That was in the 90s. I was, well, it was the late 80s and into the early 90s. They were probably the best team. And so, you know, mm. when you're a kid, you support the winner. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember keeping like little scrapbooks and like posters on the wall and 92 World Cup. Sorry, 90 World Cup, sorry. And the 94, 90 was in Italy, and I remember building the mascot. The name was Chao. And yeah, so I have good memories of football. Now I don't watch as much of it. There's just not enough time to watch all the football there is. But when there's a big game, I watch it. And I've mm. been watching the World Cup. It's a little difficult to set aside some of the off-field stuff, the corruption that brought the World Cup to where it is, yeah. some of the stuff that's happened. Before. You've watched, have you finished that FIFA documentary, by the way? I'm on episode number three, uh, FIFA, yeah. un FIFA Uncovered it's on interesting, Netflix. Yeah? Yeah. And, and I mean, in the lead up to this World Cup, Infantino, who's <laughs> the new president, spoke. And, you know, where Sepp Blatter and before him, Jai Havelange saw themselves as like statesmen and political leaders. This guy genuinely, I think, thinks he's a religious leader. <laughs> it's like a new level of self-deification. Yeah. He's like the Pope and Buddha and the Hare Krishna and the Dalai Lama <laughs> all rolled into one, come to deliver soccer to save the people. It's, it's like there's a serious like delusion mm. in football. And it's quite hard to like see coverage of that plus shock results. Saudi Arabia beats Argentina and only consider football. 
Yeah. I mean, they're claiming three people died building those stadiums. The official mm. figure is in the thousands. Really? Well, not the stadiums, but the infrastructure, infrastructure for the World yeah. Cup. Yeah. It's like, so there's so much going on. But now that the tournament is underway, I'm watching. I mean, I watched last night, Germany, Spain, really good. On Saturday, Argentina, Mexico was maybe the most meaningful game so far because of mm. Argentina's loss. And so as we get into the, as we sit here recording and maybe this comes out, we would have been in the last throws of the group stages. Now the knockout begins. And there's there's great jeopardy in it. Mm. You know, what you say is a, is a, is a uh, what would you call it, a weakness, one goal can win it, is actually one of the things that makes it really enthralling. Mm. Um, because you'll get big, big surprises. We've seen them. So, mm. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm enthusiastic. Not no, as I'll much as I have been. Finals in the final, I think. Yeah, not as much as I have been in the past. But I'm enthusiastic, and I appreciate like the chance to get insight from experts that maybe make it a bit more engaging. Well, here mm. is a very interesting insight from a man who understands about the physicality and the sports and conditioning, Nick Chad. So, Nick, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. I know that we're talking to you right in the middle of uh, the World Cup in soccer. And uh, obviously, what's unique about your situation is you're very involved in the world of soccer, but you have experience outside of soccer with having having been with the Wasps rugby team. And also, as you mentioned before this podcast, having worked with, um, uh, with uh, Olympic sports before that. Just give us a bit of a pricey about your your last sort of 15 years and, and where you come from and how you got to the position where you are now with Benfica. Sure, yeah, no problem. Um, and thanks for having me on. Um, so, yeah, last 15 years. So I uh, studied university in, in the UK and did my master's at Sheffield Hallam University um, and did a, did a short internship in football at the very beginning of my career and then quickly moved into into the world of, of uh, multiple sports um, and into the, the UK Olympic system through the English Institute of Sport, where I worked with uh, swimming, disability swimming as well in, in the Paralympic world, um, athletics with a, a group of pole vaulters going into London and uh, then transitioned into rugby. So transitioned into team sports um, it, with London Wasps at the time. Um, and then at the back of that, moved back into the Olympic scene, but in more of a rehabilitation role at the intensive rehab unit, which is based just outside of London, joint venture with the British Olympic Association and English Institute of Sport, and then stepped into the world of football, where I went into, um, was lucky enough to get a role at Manchester City, based in their, in their football academy um, as the head of, head of sports science there. Um, and I've since now ended up in, uh, in Portugal, in Benfica, having an adventure out here. Um, with my family and, and learning every day about a different way of working and, and, and style of working and culture. As we've said in the intro to our podcast today, and both Ross and I probably come to this podcast with a, a compared to our other sports that we know a, a reasonable amount, soccer is one of the areas where I certainly find myself very challenged in terms of understanding the sport itself. But just take us through what your job is at Benfica. What role do you play and, and what areas do you fulfill there? Sure, yeah. Um, so my my title is Head of Sports Science uh, for Benfica. And uh, I'm not sure, I'll just explain the context in Benfica. We have obviously the, the men's first team and the men's academy football. 
we have the women's first team and women's academy football. Um, and then we also have uh, sort of a multiple sports model where we have professional indoor sports, where we have five professional indoor sports, um, male and female, which includes sports like basketball, futsal uh, and others. Uh, we have an Olympic project as well, where we support uh, multiple Olympic athletes across the country. Uh, and we also have a professional rugby and, and rugby academy as well. Um, so my role actually is more of an umbrella role, which sits across all of that, um, which sits across the department. And so we have 35 sports scientists at the club um, across all those across all those different sports and different areas. Sure. Hmm. So when you say when you say you have those 35, what, what are the what is the role of the sports scientists? I mean, obviously, it's not just soccer, as you just mentioned. Is it just give us the, the role that you do? What areas do you look after? Yeah, so fundamentally, sports science is, is the um, umbrella term, um, rightly or wrongly. I think there's probably a little bit of ambiguity around terminology in our industry anyway. But so basically, we're, we're, we're trying to optimize the physical preparation of the athletes to perform. Um, and that is fundamentally, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do, um, all of the staff in our department, whether that's through different functions within the area. So whether that be through more of a bias through monitoring um, through actually physical preparation, maybe in the gym, on the field or on the court, um, obviously recovery strategies, um, and then obviously being integrated into some return to play processes as well, um, which are vitally important. So, I mean, I want to kick off uh, some, some of the more technical questions. Because in this podcast, we talk a lot about endurance sport. We understand the idea that athletes you know, train for an event, they they get to a certain point, they peak and then they do the event and then they recover. Tell me how different it is in the world of soccer, or sorry, I keep on saying soccer, football. No, right. <laughs> there are fines. There are fines. There are fines every time, every time I say gonna, soccer. Yeah. I'm going to listen to this podcast it's, and make notes. One, <laughs> two, three, four. I'm going to be, it's going to be a very expensive uh, podcast if I'm not very yeah. careful. But Christmas lunch is in, 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 <laughs> in football, how different is it in terms of the physical preparation? Do soccer players actually peak in a way that we would understand in, as, as endurance athletes? As endurance athletes, I'd probably suggest no. Um, what I think is amazing and fascinating about athletes in football, from coming from the experience that I had out, outside of football and then coming in, is, is their ability to main, uh, maintain such a high level of performance for such a long period of time. So I think something I did a lot of work to try and upskill myself and when I came in football was trying to learn about periodization, essentially the organization of training. And it to a certain degree goes out the window a little bit, especially on a on a long-term basis for, for, for players in, in football. Um from for multiple reasons, obviously the competition schedule is is incredible. You know, when you look at, you know, I think that there's obviously there's been some work by UEFA in the Champions League teams and you know Champions League teams were averaging maybe 5.3 games every month you know and the top some of the other teams were, were averaging six and it, it take any sort of Olympic sport or or endurance sport that you know trying to compete at a level with that sort of scrutiny six times a month it probably doesn't exist mm. for basically uh what are we talking probably yeah 10 months of the year nine ten months of the year I think the other thing as well, like within the culture of the sport, which is really interesting to understand, is there's obviously quite a lot of flux 
in terms of whether that's coach changes or, or players shifting uh, across different clubs. So, you know, trying to really dig down into, right, how can we get this player better and how are we looking at it on a long-term as much as a short-term, your long-term and short-term sort of periodization models, for want of a better term, change compared to they do in a traditional endurance sport. Yeah, and I suppose um, in the context of the World Cup, how do you periodize for the World Cup? Because the players are owned by the clubs and the international teams have very little access to them. So they kind of get together and then have to play at as close to their highest level as possible in that window of a World Cup. In that regard, the fact that this World Cup's in a different time of year, does, mm. has, it, has it changed in any way what you know of the players' preparation going into it? I don't. I think the biggest level of, of change has come from the competition, the, the competition schedule. So obviously they've got to squeeze, for want of a better term, got to squeeze all of the fixtures, the domestic mm. fixtures for the clubs in. So it's been, you know, for our players here in Benfica specifically, it's been very, very busy. You know, just probably averaging two games a week. You know, up, up until mm. the World Cup. So in terms of managing that, is a real challenge for for the players because obviously they've got competing goals as well you know they want to they want to they want to be prepared for the world club but ultimately they want to perform for their team yeah um so i think from a club perspective uh it's actually it's quite reasonably refreshing to have a bit of a break through the midway through the season um obviously most of my experience is in the uk and i know that you know the around especially around christmas and new year period which will still come into play over there, is incredibly busy. Um, but, you know, from a player perspective, you are literally going straight through and, and trying to perform, mm. um, which is a real challenge. But saying that, sometimes a change is as good as a break. Someone once said to me once. So, you know, like that, that change in environment, that change of stimulus, the change of voice can actually be, you know, quite refreshing for players, I, I believe. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's really interesting. I don't have the answers around how to manage it. And it's mm. incredible how the players manage to, to maintain such a high level of performance the whole way through. So a couple of things on that, if I may, like when the World Cup schedule comes out and we knew what the schedule, not the schedule as in match by match, but the fact that it's in this window starting in what would have been mid-November running through towards the week before Christmas, yeah. would you have sat down with the coaches and the SNC guys, the sports scientists at Benfica and said, right, we anticipate, and I would imagine a relatively high number of your players are in the World Cup, yeah. representing different countries. Do you sit down and say, all right, we, we're going to work with the player and we're going to manage that player a little bit differently leading into it because half our squad won't play football for four weeks and the other half will play the same amount as normal. How do you juggle that, that load discrepancy between your squad members? Um, uh, to be honest, I think what we do is... Uh, We've obviously we've obviously looked at when it is. It's the same for everybody, um, and we know that the break's coming. We know who's roughly who's going to be involved before or, or not. It's obviously not official until they announce the, the squad. But in terms of managing them in into the into the World Cup, it if if it can be done, it, it can be done. I'll, I'll, Probably say in the UK, it's probably slightly more challenging in terms of 
the league is less polarised within the Premier League, for example. So, you know, any team can lose to any team. The, the league's slightly more polarised here where we have some really, really strong teams, including us at the top, um, which, are, you know, are, are, in, are in great contention to win the league. But the reality is some of the teams aren't, won't be in, in the top half. So maybe in terms of managing that against the opponents, it is possible. But really the objective of the club is to win every single game. Yeah, so so we want to try and do that. And then what we try and do is with the player is develop and optimise the best individual recovery strategies or management strategies for them in between games and then leading into the World Cup as well. Um, and I think that's that's something that's taken on a really big emphasis. Obviously, recovery in football is, is a massive topic. Yeah. Then during and after, do you have any influence at all, even to the extent of knowledge about what's happening with those players? Or are you waiting to receive them back at the end of their involvement in the World Cup and then react to their physical condition, their fatigue, their recovery status? Or, or do you have maybe even with the national team, but not other teams that your players play for? How, how does it work communication and, and activation-wise? Sure, yeah. So um, <clears throat> it depends on the federation, to be honest. So um, with the Federation, we usually get really, really good feedback Like we're all we're all here to try and do the same thing, really. And that's get the best out of the players. So I think we certainly come from a from an angle of let's work together on this because we want the best for the player. Nobody wants the player to get injured, whether it's the Federation or the club. So we try and work together as much as we possibly can. Obviously, we're going to get data and we get feedback from the Federation around what they've done. Um, and we try and keep open communications there. Um, equally, a, a set of numbers or a set of data can only tell you so much in terms of the context from what that player's come, what they've been feeling, their emotional response to the tournament, around whether they've had individual success and team success as well. Um, and obviously, I think, I think one of the challenges really around players that go away on international uh, with an international, you're never really going to have a training stimulus or you never get the chance to have a training stimulus that sits in that kind of what I would call that adaptation bucket where, you, mm. where, you're, where you're trying to overload them to, to create an adaptive response because your fixtures come so thick and fast. And I think one of the challenges is with the players that sit on the fringe of the squad, yeah, the ones that don't necessarily play so much, but equally the ones they're not training so much as well. Yeah. And that's a real, they're the ones that are probably more of a challenge to manage when you come back because they, they, they've probably been underloaded or underconditioned over a period of time. The, the boys and the girls that come back that have played some quite good game time, the reality is because there's so many games, you get quite a lot of your adaptive and conditioning response from the game. Mm. So they're actually not too bad because they, they're obviously, they're playing against good teams. They're getting really good competition level. So they're getting a really good stimulus. So I'd say, I'd argue that there maybe can sometimes be less of a, less of a factor because they can actually get back into the club and hit the ground running again. Mm. I suppose there's also juxtapositioned against the fact that those, the, the best players in the squad are going to be playing more regularly Therefore, they're probably more likely to get fatigued and potentially suffer from chronic or or, or injuries. Um, how do you? I mean, when you look at that sort of scenario, take take us through the recovery 
methods that you use, particularly on those players that are that are participating a lot in, in those weekly yeah. games or bi-weekly games? I mean, just, just yeah. as context to that, like in the peak of the season when you're in the Champions League, players will play typically, I don't know, Portugal, but it'll be Saturday and then a Wednesday, then a Sunday and a Thursday. So yeah. every couple of weeks, four matches. That's the recovery that you've got to now optimize. What's in your toolbox? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. And um, so in the toolbox, you well, what you'd be looking for is you'd be looking for some some individual knowledge on the player. And I think this is really probably underestimated now with the amount of data that's that's gone on. So, you know, if you take if you think about a person's response to a stimulus there's multiple things that are going to affect it. And, and, you know, there's going to be genetic predisposition. There's going to be personal predispositions and traits, you know, their stress history and resilience, their prior training and injury history, and then their current, like their acute stress status as well. So I think one of the, one of the key things, and I think that some of the, the clubs that are more successful have this is, having staff and people that really know the players and by that i mean you know you guys will have worked with athletes before and especially in olympic sports you get this culture of where coaches and support staff spend a lot of time and have been with athletes for a long time so they have that performance like structure wrapped around them for quite a long time and you intimately get to know the athlete and how they respond what works well for them what works doesn't and I think the more you can have that within a club, um, the better. Then off the back of that, going into some, some more technical sports science stuff, we'll look to do some, some post-match monitoring. Um, obviously, we go for the big rocks first. You've got to go for the big rocks first in terms of nutrition and sleep um, and really try and optimise those as much as we can for, for each individual. Um, and this is also a challenge for some clubs as well, because it's based on the re resources that you have. So it's not like an Olympic sport. One of my observations coming from Olympic sport is the coach to athlete ratio is much smaller than it traditionally has been in a team sport. So if you think if you've got a squad of, say, 22 to 25 players, you know, how can you... And the, the bigger clubs are resourcing it now where you're really reducing that coach to athlete ratio or support practitioner to athlete ratio. So you can get that more intimate knowledge. Um, but yeah, then going into your monitoring. So we would take some, some blood markers. We would, we would do some subjective monitoring as well. Um, and then we would try and do some sleep monitoring in and around the, the games as well. Um, daily, to understand how they're responding. No, it's immediately pre and we'll do a variation of some of those variables pre and post game. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested. I mean, you, you talk you, you talked around the philosophy behind it, but just give us a sort of a, an idea of what actually happens. So you the guys play a game, take us through the routine. You talked about monitoring sleep, but what actually happens to as they come off the field? What happens immediately post match, and then maybe for the two three days after that to in, encourage that recovery? Yeah, so they'll be straight. They would be straight into the changing room. They go straight into some form of of recovery strategy, probably nutritionally um they'd be straight into that if you have the resources to, to take them with you which some clubs do and some clubs don't you know maybe into some sort of water immersion um in the changing rooms which can be done 
Um, and then we'll go straight into probably some compression garments, um, which is, you know, a relatively low risk proposition, even though the research, you know, isn't quite in agreement on it. But um, and then and then, yeah, depending on, on the home and away fixtures as well, operationally will depend on, on what you're doing. So I know sometimes uh, we might look to stay on another night. You know, especially if you're traveling away and you're abroad, like in a Champions League fixture. Um, so we can get straight out of the stadium, straight into into the hotel and into a sleep pattern. Um, and then over the next 24 hours, we'll start to take those blood markers, try and highlight any anomalies that, that flag up for any of the players. Again, constantly looking at what the what the fixture congestion looks like as well for those players. So, for example, the cumulative load over time taking that into consideration and making sure we're having those those conversations as well. Um, and then they come in the day after, we'd look at those markers, and then maybe go through some additional recovery strategies, whether that's some more water immersion and active recovery as well. Um, and, and then try and control their nutrition for the majority part of that day. And then equally, you're going to have some players that, that need a training stimulus that haven't maybe had a stimulus from the game. So you tend to split in and different coaches have different philosophies on this. You know, some would like the day after the game completely off. So you don't have to come into the club from a psychological perspective, especially if you've got a high percentage of players, for example, that have families, you know, reducing that time away from the family. Um, and some coaches like to bring the players in on, on match day plus one. Um, almost use that as a bit of a reset day and sometimes have match day plus two. So you almost get every the whole squad back onto the same schedule again. So that yeah. when you've got you come back in after match day plus two, everybody's kind of in the same in the same place. So you can move on. Because you do have team demands as well, as much as it's obviously really important to individualize, you know, it's a team sport and you have to function as a team. What's interesting is that I wonder how scientific it is, and you'll be able to answer this, I'm sure. Do you measure how many minutes of game time a player will have and then say, look, this player has had X amount of game time. Therefore there needs to be more rest for the next two weeks. And this player can play more. I mean, is it, is it as scientific as that in terms of measuring game time? I think, I think we probably go a little bit deeper than that as well. And, and most clubs probably will as well in terms of actually looking at what their load is like during the game. So it can be quite, time can be quite a blunt tool. Mm. obviously because it depends on the opposition so it's one of the phenomenons of the sport right it's it's like um sometimes your physical output is completely dependent on, on what the opposition look like and what type of game it is um but you know you can go we have live monitoring now of gps or, or physical metrics for example so we can actually look at what their game outputs are like relative to their normal their maximum their minimum, for example. So I thought one forty-five, all forty-five minutes are never equal. Yeah. So so using forty-five minutes as an example can be quite blunt. Although I would say it's it's still a useful consideration as well. So you so can those then, load sorry sorry, um, I was just going to say so the load metrics you use then would be specifically meters of high intensity running, sprint meters, stuff like that, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Does it even it, get more granular than that like would you measure jumps made directional changes hard accelerations because as you know like a 
a, a five meter acceleration, maybe 10 meter acceleration doesn't get you into high speed running, but it's actually very physiologically demanding. So what level of um, microscopic detail do you yeah. go into there? And, and what, what in your, and then, okay, let me ask that and then, and then I'll follow it up with the next one. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, no, for that, I'd say we, we, we do take consideration of, of all of those things. Um, jumps, uh, I'd say we don't have the capacity to do that now or yet. Um, we do in the indoor sports where we have, um a positioning a positioning system which can can measure that um obviously you can't use gps in indoors um and that actually becomes really important when you're talking about a sport like volleyball as well which where they don't run but they jump a lot um but we, yeah we, we would look at all those things in terms of i would say if you want to term it like gate response so like with a high speed running sprinting zones but then also look at more mechanical responses in terms of those change of directions, the heavy accelerations, the decelerations. Obviously, the research has shown that decelerations obviously have a massive damaging effect. Of course, it's, it's basically an it's basically an eccentric eccentric action right. uh, overload. Um, especially how incredibly well some of them them change direction as well. Um, and then we can use some stuff off off of our specific GPS provider as well in terms of. Where they've created some al algorithms around high intensity moments and then the other one is to also look at the intensity of the game relative to the time so it's not just about looking at the absolute score it's about looking at the absolute score relative to the time because you know you and i can achieve however much high high speed running but you know one of us might do it in in 10 minutes and one of us might do it in 40 minutes so the density is different Mm, mm. What, in your experience, is the best metric to judge load against? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's you know, you know, you already know the answer to that one because there's probably no one thing. There is no one <laughs> yeah, goal. There's no, no, you're right. There's no one. But I mean, like, if you if you if you had to make a snap judgment, the coach says, Nick. I need to pick a squad. I need to know between these two players. Is what would you go to first? Instinct or data? Instinct. Yeah. So that's that acquired knowledge that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, and but that instinct is going that instinct is going to be based on objective and subjective measures. Right. This so learned over time, yeah. That you that you have to learn and you've also got to to look, try and learn the player as well. Mm. Uh, and that, so that instinct isn't um, completely subjective at all. One of the challenges with the amount of data that's now being produced in in every area, in not just physical, is it, it's really useful. But the reality of what is really useful is the the ability to interpret it and translate it into meaningful action. Mm, mm. So it is really useful having a page of numbers. But it's probably more interesting than useful. What's useful is the interpretation of that data and translating it into some meaningful action for the player. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, just 
wanted to actually sorry mike you, you're gone me... yeah i mean uh, i always think we, we, and i think this applies to most sports is that you, you obviously get situations where players are eager to play and and they will defy or even potentially lie to the person that's with them so they can continue to play the game how, how do you is, is that a consideration in football where players push themselves beyond what they're capable of and you guys need to intervene and how good is that communication between sports scientists that are working with the players and the players themselves? Yeah, uh, it's a good good question. I, players will always want to play and it's, it always amazes me sometimes how they can play when you genuinely think they can't as well. Uh, I even had that in rugby and I'm sure you guys have seen it. You know, we've had some players that you know, during the week of training, you're thinking, oh, God, this, like, they, they don't train. But then somehow on match day, they, they turn out and, and have an absolute mm-hmm. well-being. You know, where did that come from? Um, which is just amazing. So I think it's constantly challenging you around what you know or what you think you know. Um, and, you know, this the whole philosophy of let's predict injuries like the reality is there's just too many variables. It's like, it's like the old graphic equalizer. There's so many variables. You just can't pick out one to, to hang your hat on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think with a player, from a player perspective, if you come at it from a, from an angle of, of trust and we're here to support you and do the best thing for you, as well as for the team, I genuinely would say 99.9% of players will understand that and be on board with that. And you can't punish them for being ambitious and wanting to to play and try and realize their potential. Mm. But equally, sometimes they have to go off your intuition, your knowledge, combined with their knowledge of their, their body, because a lot of the time that's going to be way better I'm, they're going to know their body better than me probably most of the time and then try and find that solution together and then you start delving into the realms of like the practitioner and coach athlete relationship there which is going to determine those levels of influence those levels of conversations that you can have mm. i mean it probably wouldn't surprise listeners to know that the subjective re- report from the player is the best predictor of an imminent injury Mm. I mean, that's the case. Would you, would you agree, Nick? I mean, it's the subjective. I don't feel right. I'm excessively tired. My muscles are sore. That predicts injury. In fact, there's a paper came out relatively recently. There's a journal called the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, and they have a special issue with a focus on football in conjunction with the World Cup. came out literally in September. One of the papers that made the cut is called Recovery During a Congested Schedule and Injury in Professional Football. And they monitor a whole bunch of stuff, like Nick said, graphic equalizer time. And the best predictor is non-contact injury. So that's like a hamstring strain. It's a tendinopathy. It's like the kind of chronic overload injury associated with fatigue and muscle soreness in the two and three days after matches. And increase, and this, and this goes back to recovery, an increase of sleep quantity during the two nights following a match is associated with lower risk of injury and a lower reduction in muscle force production. So you get fatigue, but less fatigue when you sleep better. Mm. That's not rocket science. You don't need a paper to know this. But the point is that what the athlete reports is actually maybe your loudest canary. And is there, I mean, is there a self-assessment protocol that you have with the athletes? In other words, do you give them a, a form or, a, or an app at the beginning of the day and say, 
you know, tell us how you're feeling today. Give us your self-assessment. Yeah, it's worked different in different clubs that I've had I've had experience of. Sometimes they use a form. Sometimes it's actually a, a face-to-face conversation, but a structured conversation. So that you're trying to standardise the conversation and standardise the response as well. So that you can maybe score it yourself. And, and then I think the, the key there is, is what's normal for that player over time and establishing anything that's out of that normal. Um, and there's always, there's always going to be stuff that, you, that you, can't, you can't measure as well that you have to take into consideration. So, for example, family bereavement, uh, any, anything at home around maybe relationships, um, the stress of somebody coming into a contract negotiation, for example, you know, those things have to be considered as a, as an added layer on top as well, and just brought into the conversation. They're not necessarily going to determine that one thing is not necessarily going to determine what you do, but it's something you put on the table to, to consider. Yeah. It's funny how we always, every time mm. we talk to you about sports science and sport, we end up on relational elements. <laughs> and actually, you know, like, I don't know if you found this, Nick, but in my time with the South African Sevens, the most important person in the ecosystem was the physio because he would be giving the players rub downs or strapping and so on. And then they would confide in him in a moment of relaxation that they were going through some relationship issue. Their father was sick or they were worried about finances. They had a loan there to pay or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he was in a very privileged but important position because it would be up to him to say, you know, that player's underperforming because of emotional things that you blokes, you science types are missing. Yeah. <laughs> but if he violated the trust, he'd no longer have that position. So it's a difficult situation. You need good people, not good scientists. Yeah. Would you, con- yeah. Would you concur with that, Chad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely concur with that. And I think if you can get really good, good people that obviously have a knowledge and are able to interpret the data, because the reality is, you know, um, if you do something radical outside of the norm, like any of us go away today and do something physically radical or different to what we're normally used to, we're going to know about it tomorrow, right? Yeah. Um, so, so the reality is you've got to stay within a, in a, in a, in a, within a threshold, within a bandwidth from a physical and a, a numbers perspective of training load. Um, but then equally outside of that, there's a lot more information because like one of my favorite phrases is that not all that counts can be counted. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's so true. That's so yeah, true when yeah. you've got so many variables yeah. in, the, in the pot. Listen, I wanted to circle back to something you said a little earlier. You spoke about in recovery, you go for the big rocks first, the sleep and nutrition, um, which I agree with. Does it ever, and you've been in so many sports now, so you'll see this is a universal human trait, is the desire to just throw everything at the problem. So we yeah. know recovery makes a difference. Therefore, let's do everything. And you even alluded to the fact that compression garments, there's not much evidence for, but it's low risk. In your in your sports science experience, where is football on the spectrum of gimmicky, <laughs> gadgetry thinking compared to some of the others? And how do you as a scientist juggle foundational stuff against innovative things you know probably don't really work? Yeah, okay. Um, so there was actually a really great, like summary paper, I think it was back in 2017 by Kelman around around recovery uh, strategies and and around some of the things that are out there to support it. And obviously, some have higher levels of evidence than than others that are published, and some that are not. And I think it was 2018, Kelman, sorry. And I think the things that 
that they highlighted in that paper was individualized strategies, uh, which I touched on a bit, appropriate physiological mechanisms. So, you know, when we, we obviously mentioned the big rocks, mm. it's like, well, okay, when we're going for those physiological mechanisms that, you know, let's make sure we get the ones that we definitely know work. Um, it talks about the periodization or organizing the interventions and then positive player perception uh, and quality above quantity. So it's mm. funny what you just said around, you know, you want to throw the, the kitchen sink at it. Mm. Um, I think you can throw the kitchen sink at it if you do it in a clever way. Uh, I think you can certainly use strategies that might be more termed more like marginal gains or, or one percenters. But I would say you've obviously you've got to get the big rocks right first, like we spoke about, because um, those one percenters will, will have a bigger impact if you've got the, the rest right. Um, and then it's about getting the player perception on board. And again, it's coming from a subjective anecdotal thing, but you'll find that some recovery strategies actually cause more harm than good in terms of the way it makes a player feel. Um, cold water immersion was always was always one that was a challenge, you know, that some players felt like they responded really well from it and others you could just see it was an absolute stressor to the point where they were probably thinking in the last two minutes of the game, oh crap, I've got to get in an ice bath after this. <laughs> Which is kind of the, doing the opposite of what you're trying to, trying to achieve. Um, I think the the positive player's perception is a, is a massive thing, and giving them a bit of empowerment. Like it's it's clearly been shown that if a player feels empowered and engaged in a process, that actually that will have a positive impact on on how they respond to it. Um, and you know, if even if it is a, a, a placebo in inverted commas, does, does it actually matter if it's having a positive effect at the back end? Mm. I would argue. I would argue no, because ultimately your your underlying objective is to optimize that recovery strategy and fundamentally performance in in the preceding training or competition. Yeah. yeah. Nick, tell us about um, the, the the injuries that these players suffer from most. I mean, what what is the most common uh, football injury? Yes, yeah, to the thigh. The most common football injury, if you look at the UEFA. Uh, Champions League studies, the most common injury is, is to the thigh in football um, as, a, as an area specifically. Um, I don't have all the answers as to why, but because obviously there's so, there's so many variables and there's so many different mechanisms. There's obviously been a lot of research and study and a trend towards the impact of of how high speed running, not in terms of the threshold, but as in literally running fast, has an impact on on that, um, but equally we see we see what what fascinates me is we see a lot of other sports and a lot of other athletes that run really really fast as well, and might have a have a lesser injury incidence. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of factors, including for things like the competition schedule, the fact that they have to change direction, which I think is, you know, massively. Well, it's it's obviously respected within the sport, but outside of sport, when you see these athletes change direction, it's it's really really impressive. That was my first that was my first observation coming from, especially coming from rugby, coming into football, seeing how quickly the guys change direction was incredible. Yeah, and then going back to watch rugby, um, 
obviously there's a lot of human being that they have to to, to, to change direction in terms of mass um, and they do that really really differently in terms of their strategies to do it mm. i always love the debate where they talk about who, who are the fittest sports people in the world and you know of all across the sports i mean having worked in various sports uh, let, let me throw that question at you do you think football players are the fittest sports people if you look at it overall ability endurance all those little things that's even worse than my question that's, even worse that's, way, that's way worse than your question <laughs> i'll have to i'll have um, to throw it at the odd one yeah yeah they're, they're the fittest at playing football yeah <laughs> but then you know you, you you try you try any sport you know when i was working with the pole vault guys you know i consider myself a reasonably uh fit human being and i had to go at a, a pole vault session it took me a good three days to get over that yeah you know the velocity that they they throw themselves into that contact with the pole you know is is like incredible like and the amount of strength they need and and the speed that they approach it is amazing i think every sport is amazing you know you get you get a rugby player to try to play football um which we did in some warm-ups it's 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 interesting to watch <laughs> and, and you, you know you get a football player to try and play rugby or do pole vault it's it's completely different so i think they're they deserve respect in their own right as opposed to trying to be compared across sports yeah there's a good segue maybe to talk a little bit about the physiological demands and what you're actually conditioning a player for um yeah and, and in that context our view our listeners will watch world cup matches and i don't know what it's like where you are or england or wherever anyone's listening to this but here in south africa they'll show some stats at half time they show you a stat for total distance run by the team which is one of the least meaningful stats you'll ever see in any sport <laughs> ever um <laughs> because presumably it includes the goalkeeper it's completely meaningless uh, and then when a player comes off i was watching spain germany last night and at 50 minutes someone came off and they'll say distance run 5.5 kilometers passes completed and so on and they'll give you these yeah. little tidbits of stats but let's let's give people proper insight and explain what are you what are you actually conditioning a footballer to do sure so essentially it's a repeated high intensity sport right so you do have positional variations. The biggest positional variation is the goalkeeper compared to the outfield players. And depending on the way you play for the out, if we just talk about the outfield players, the outfield players will have different physical outputs, obviously, depending on position. So like a centre back will have a very different physical output compared to a winger. Mm. Um, but essentially, they're all taking part in, in high intensity and repeated high intensity actions what those actions actually are so if you have a player saying in central midfield for example it's it's quite clearly been shown that they they tend to have much more changes of direction as their high intensity efforts than say a wide player that will have it more in in in, in a running fast type high intensity action yeah or repeated repeated sprints um and but the one thing that's common is is they're all running and they're all changing direction, high intensity. And and the thing that generally defines, and what you said about the, the meaningless stat about, about the total distance, is the thing that generally defines the more successful teams than the, the non-successful teams is that they output more high intensity efforts than 
the non-successful teams in my in my experience and, and of everything I've seen. So, yeah, um, I've seen similar studies. I remember looking yeah. into this and the difference between elite and good is not total. It's it's, sharp, it's a sharp end of the spear, as it were. You know, how many sprints do you do? How, how much time or distance do you cover or rate at sprint speed? So that's that's what you're saying yeah. there, right, Nick? It's um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you like you could argue that high speed running as a as a statistic from the GPS is kind of actually a, a mid zone. It's it's not really that high speed, especially for some of the players that we and the athletes we're talking about nowadays that can run as fast as they can. Right. Let's give people an idea of that. So like in the papers I've seen like 20 to 25 K and I is called high speed running. And that's not that fast. That's, that's like a marathon runner runs. <laughs> so we're depends, actually, how, depends how fast you are though. It doesn't matter the marathon <laughs> runner is, but I would, I'm thinking Kipchoge now 21 K and our marathon, right? So yeah. what, what, what sort of speed zones are you looking at then? So we would be, that would be, we would class that as our high speed running zone. Then yeah. you're looking at a sprint zone that we, that you'd look at um, roughly depending on which, provider you use and which club it is roughly around above 25 kilometers an hour and then we're obviously looking at um maximum speed outputs we know what the players maximum speeds are and and where they're achieving how many times they might achieve a percentage above 85 percent, for example of the maximum speed yeah i mean how do you and, deal with sorry how do you deal with the, the reality that when you talk about speed, you're actually talking about an end point of an action. And yeah. if I'm watching a game and I'm watching England play against uh, Wales now tomorrow, I think it is, as we were sitting record, Harry Kane's at the top of the box on the D and he's going to sprint to the penalty spot. He's got no chance of making top speed, but that sprint is potentially extremely demanding and crucial to the outcome of the game. So how do you measure that? Where, where does that get factored in? So then we, we have the ability to measure, uh, you know, something from the GPS accelerations and decelerations. Okay. Um, and we tend to do that above a certain meters per second uh, squared. And um, some clubs will use two factors in there. Some clubs might just use one threshold in there, but that would fall into that category. So they would register an acceleration into that. Um, and a deceleration, like we spoke about before, is probably even more interesting when it comes to the damage that occurs um, from that yeah. stimulus. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that, that's, again, a massive consideration. Um, and, you know, that's what we're saying. The players that sit, for example, a midfielder that sits in the in the middle there will register a lot more of those actions than they would, say, entries and time spent in a high-speed running or a sprint distance zone. Yeah, whereas your fullback is often making that overlapping run and covering 50 metres and will hit 30k an hour regularly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. Absolutely, and and they're conditioned to do that. So, so then when you're going to compare data, um, you know you've got to make sure you're not comparing apples and pears. So, you know, if you can, if you're looking at those wide, wide players, what they're producing is obviously going to be significantly higher than players based in the middle of the field in terms of gait, in terms of that sprinting. So, but they're conditioned to that. You know, they're, they're conditioned to that. So that might be normal for them. Whereas the same statistics might be a complete overload for a different position um, or not complete overload, but an overreach, you know, they would have had to, to overreach significantly to achieve that. Mm. So, so again, coming to the interpretation of the data and knowing, knowing the sport and the players. So do different positions in the sport change their way they train as well as a result of that? Do they have different yeah. training regimes? Yeah. So that we, we obviously when we, when we train, 
we train mostly as a team and as a team you all you will train in a position specific way because you are training for the game um i think i only like i like i said before we started the podcast that you know my my experience is i don't know all football i can only speak from my experiences that i've had but you know really good coaches i think train the game specifically there was a big trend towards you know small-sided games um, and a big push towards that um and i think from observing uh, different coaches work they really make it specific to the sizes that need to be played so you know it wouldn't be uncommon for to, to go and see an, an 11 v 11 and that makes logical sense right you got you got to train for the competition the same way endurance sports or an olympic sport you would touch on what you would call race pace Mm. that you might you might do a bit of training at a race pace you know and the same as that would be football's race pace you know is doing some 11 v 11 or 10 v 10 on a full pitch Mm. Mm. so i i'm and and and, so maybe a question following on from that is are there sort of some baseline numbers that you can run on players so you've obviously worked not only with the elites but you've obviously looked at the grassroots level as well can you can you look at a player who's you know up and coming and say right do a series of tests and this is their sprint speed this is their this is the capacity they have to run through a series of hurdles etc cetera, etc cetera. and you can establish via the numbers whether they are capable of being at that at a certain level in the sport so yeah this is an interesting one so testing is um quite probably a relatively controversial and challenging subject in football, partly around the, because the competition schedule makes it, makes it challenging. But what I would say, physical capacity is probably not going to win you the game like outright. Um, but it will lose it for you if you haven't got it. <laughs> yeah. So, so what you need to have is you need to have a sufficient physical capacity yeah, to be able to tolerate the demands of the game, to be able to as well play the way that the coach wants to play uh, and, the, and execute the tactical and te- technical skills that you need to, to to essentially try and get success. But as a standalone variable, it's not going to win it for you. Mm. Mm. And this is, this is one of the challenging but also fascinating things about the sport is that there are so many variables as in to what controls success. And so much of the actual game is random, trying to really just pinpoint one thing and go, you can be really good at this, so you will have a really good game or you will be really good, just mm-hmm. isn't, isn't sufficient. And you, so you have to look at the whole spectrum. And that's, that is one of the, yeah, it's one of the great performance pieces of the sport is that you are trying to combine all those things to look at what success is. And there's yeah, also so, no one right or wrong way to play the game. From a, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not a coach, so I can't talk for coaches, but there's no one right or wrong way to play the game. When you look at the different philosophies, different styles, different tactics that, that coaches want to play, they don't, they don't all do it the same way but they might get a really similar result at the end of the season, as in the two teams finish, what, a point off to win the league, but they've done it in a really different way. Mm. I think that's also fascinating. Yeah, I was going to add to that. Um, 
the, the, the interesting thing is there's so many ways to win and lose that there's no one metric again, you know, we're trying to be reductionist here, but actually it doesn't fit. But the, yeah. I, I almost look at it in terms of you look at the cyclist and you say, well, if a cyclist isn't doing five and a half watts a kilo as an 18 year old, he's never going to be in with the chance of being a professional cyclist. Right. And Whereas what you're saying is the variables in soccer are far wider than that. Well, just compare Messi and Ronaldo physically. Yeah. I mean, they, they're going to score goals in very different ways but they're both going to score 40 or whatever it is a year for a decade. So, mm -hmm. so which one would you then pick or, or, or maybe put that aside? Cause that one causes take Drogba compared to the, I don't know, pick a, pick a striker from one of the teams that doesn't score goals the way that he used to, you know, very different yeah. ways to and score we'll, and win. Yeah. And they, yeah. so they have different attributes. So again, right. it's like, it's like that graphic equalizer uh, sort of comparison is like you can use it not just for training, but you can use it all also to to profile a player. Like players or athletes are going to have strengths in different areas. You know, you you could have a player that's technically and tactically very very good, but physically not so good. Um, so okay, you you know what you need to work on, but actually, that the technical and the tactical ability allow them still to compete at a very very high level. Yeah. Mm. And, and then you think, right, where's the opportunity here? So you maintain the super strengths. Like we always talk about the areas of weakness and what we need to develop. But actually keep investing in those super strengths as well, because really that's what got them there mm. and what keeps them there as well. Mm. And you're going to have that over so many different variables when you break, I mean, you break technical and you break tactical down and then you just have a load of variables cascading out the bottom of that. Um and, you know, you can be really good in certain areas and not so good in other areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Better example, Erling Haaland and Mo Salah. You know, neither at the World Cup. Strikers for the two, well, best teams in England, theoretically. <laughs> Completely different skill sets, physical attributes, and so on. So it's quite interesting like that. And in that context, when you watch a World Cup and you see different playing styles, what you were talking about earlier, Nick, the, the demands of the game. I mean, when 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 a team plays against, say, Morocco, I watched them beat Belgium yesterday, as opposed to Spain, the physical demands of playing against different opposition must be totally different also. Yeah, yeah. So it, doesn't, it, it, doesn't that create situations where actually physical conditioning does become the thing that that uh, wins you the game? It, it Again, it will contribute. Yeah. Because, but sometimes you, you will also have to pick players based on what they offer you from a physical perspective, like managers will pick players based on what they offer on a physical perspective, aligned to how they they want to play. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about it at a very simple level, like on a, especially from a coach's perspective. But, you know, if, if you are going to want to press really aggressively for 90 minutes, so every time you lose the ball, mm. you want the ball back within six seconds, you know, you're going to have to choose players that can do that. Especially if you're not if you're not going to have the ball for ninety percent of the game, that's going to be hard work. Yeah. Um, so you've really got to have players that have the capacity to do that. Um, yeah. So you know that that comes into it as well, and you start to bring in the art as well. But then, but then to try and live out of the grey zones a little bit, you do try and we do try and measure things and profile players based on where their strengths and super strengths and areas of development are, right? So, you know, we know roughly what a player's good at and what they need to develop. And therefore you can try and make an informed decision based around that. And 
more importantly, you can actually guide the training process and the training interventions around those as well to try and individualize them and improve them in those areas or maintain their maintain their ability in those super strength areas. Hmm. Has the game evolved in the, in the, I suppose maybe this is unfair for, because you haven't been involved in it for generations, but if I look back at the, even the 2010 world cup that was won here in South Africa by Spain. And then that was, that was coincident with the period of Guardiola's peak at, at Barcelona. And obviously now you see it at Man City and this, this, there seems to have been an evolution in the way the game is played. Yeah. Um, and that must have significant implications for your job. So when the coach says, I want to press and I want to implement the six second um, ball retrieval strategy, what are you going to focus on in the off season if that wasn't the plan before? Yeah, so that that will change. Well, it, for, for starters, it will actually change team training, what team training looks like, because you'll start to train in that way. Um, if a player, if a coach comes in to do that, there's one. There's another factor you've got to balance here, and that is that is then the injury risk that comes from doing something completely different. Like if you change in philosophy or doing something completely different. Mm -hmm. So if we change our training philosophy tomorrow morning and start doing something completely different than what we've been doing, our body's going to have a, a significant reaction to that. That that because it's, it's, we're doing something we're not used to. So and there's research out there that shows that you know that the injury burden increases significantly in the the two weeks and the month post a manager change because they bring in a they bring in a new philosophy a new way of doing things and therefore that that usually is associated with a different type of training load. So what I would say is the first thing you've got to do is you've got to try and you've got to see where the end goal is and try and you know almost reverse engineer it, which. Mm. Isn't uncommon in in like a cycling event, is it? You know, you kind of have a target on what a what a time is, for example, for a time trial. When you reverse engineer what you need to try and get there, mm. um, and I would say that's the one thing you've got to do when you get um, maybe a new coach that brings in a new philosophy is you're not going to get there immediately, and you've just got to balance that act of like it's that constant pushing the players, but knowing when not to push to support them. Because at the end of the day, um, availability is highly linked to success of clubs as well. So a, a team is not going to be successful if they don't have their best players available to play. So you then have to balance that variable as well. So yes, we want to push and we want to get to this goal of being this team that, that presses for 90 minutes, gets the ball back within six seconds as, as the example. That, that you mentioned and we mentioned but it's like right how are we going to get there and how long are we going to take to get there to push it with without making sure we don't have an availability that's going to be really detrimental because the reality is the off season and the pre-season aren't that long um it's not long before you start getting straight back into a competitive fixture schedule and you don't want to be entering that with you know a quarter of the squad unavailable Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. My my final question is uh, looking forward in terms of you know we've seen in rugby, for instance, things like you know mouth guards with with um, systems in them and all that sort of thing. What do you see in terms of sports science and soccer maybe ten years down the road? And what where do you think football can go? 
uh, as opposed to, as opposed to where it is now. You know, there's obviously certain ways of doing things. Where do you where do you think it can improve, and where do you think technology can make football better for the players, and maybe potentially better for the spectators? Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's, let's just focus on the players, shall we? Yeah, the first bit. Yeah, the first bit around around where it's going. That, that's a that's a great question. I haven't got a crystal ball, and obviously we've got you know we're working with youth development as well. So we're not actually preparing these players for what football is today. We're preparing them for what football is in five to ten years. And yeah. like the reality is, we don't actually know what that will look like because if you went ten years back and said. Oh, this is this is what football is going to look like in 2022. I'm pretty sure there wouldn't be many people that would that would say it, w- it was necessarily going to be that way. Um, so that's that's a challenge. Uh, but what we're trying to do is give, especially development players, well-rounded skill sets around in in every area, well-rounded skill sets, and then equally knowledge touching on what we spoke a little bit about earlier around knowledge of their own body and their own strategies to help manage themselves as well. So I think one of the, one of the negative sides of having so much resource and maybe so much uh, having so much money available is that sometimes quite a lot can get done for the players. And, you know, that's on the proviso that, we're giving more resource, we're giving more support so that they don't have to do as much, which essentially means they can increase their performance levels in training and playing to squeeze more out of themselves. But I'm not, I'm not sure that works because to get more out of yourself, I'd argue you probably need to know yourself really, really well and not rely on, on somebody else to do that. So then it's like bringing in that education with the young players now where they do know themselves because the reality is in football and the culture of football that there will be change, there will be flux, they will change clubs, they will change philosophies, they will change support practitioners. But if they can enter a scenario and know what they need to do and keep the continuity of their training, then that's a really positive thing. Um, I think... It's really interesting to talk about the the other 23 hours. So not the two hours that they're training, but the other 23 hours uh, around it uh, and how we can probably manage that well. Um, That's always a balance around, you know, you're obviously intruding into athletes' lives. So if you go through the amount of monitoring that's done with with some of the athletes, you know, it is relative. It's very intrusive if you're tracking them all the time, especially with the ability of wearables now to wear them 24 hours a day. Um, and then, like I touched on earlier, I think the really, from in my experience of speaking and seeing coaches, the really good coaches are really individually making players better. So that notion of are we going to buy a player and get a transfer of a player into a club and they're kind of like ready-made and we don't need to do anything, we can just helicopter and drop them in. I think really good coaches are really reducing that coach to athlete ratio um, and really investing on the development of the individual whilst maintaining the team philosophy and team culture to move forward. Um, I think, I think that's where people are going to have a, a lot of success. Mm-hmm. A couple of questions for me back to Qatar. Um, 
Have you noticed anything or do you know anything from on the ground that you might have heard about the effect of heat on performance? It hasn't been obviously because of the window they're playing in nearly as bad as it would have been in June, July, but I did see reports that it's been in the low 30s and players are coming out of European time November. Have you heard mm. anything about that? No, no, to be honest. <laughs> there's there's not been a lot around that and, and the, uh, the indoor air conditioning's helped a little bit as well, hasn't it? Mm. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I did wonder whether, I think I saw a stat, or I heard a stat in commentary saying that in the first 25 games, 13 had reached 0-0 at halftime. And then they open up big time in the second half. And it's always interested me because there's two things happen. One is fatigue. And so all of a sudden, because the ball, you see the ball doesn't get tired. Mm. And so it moves into spaces at the same speed the whole game long. Maybe a little bit slow because they get tired in passing, but the players do. And so towards the end of a game, they drop off. I did see a paper where it said that only 3% of players will do their highest five minutes of activity in the last 15 minutes, whereas 40% do their lowest. So the players are much slower at the end of the game. Mm. That's why subs open the game up and you get more chances and so on. I did wonder whether the heat had something to do with the excessively, and I'm projecting here, conservative start to matches. Yeah, it, it could be. Um, I haven't heard anything maybe the teams are really evenly matched <laughs> and then and then and then towards the back end of the game like you said you know mm. to, to execute to execute technically and tactically under fatigue is is a is a challenge it's tough it's tough mm. and there's, there's mistakes are going to happen the games are going to come more open um as people just can't get to the same space in the same amount of time or can't execute the same technical skill at the same speed they could in the first 15 minutes, first half an hour. Mm. Mm. And then, and then last question, just on some players, like who, as an S and C person now watching it through that lens, who are some of the players who strike you as the most impressive? And I know there are different skill sets for different players. And so we can't compare the center back to the fullback and the center forward, and the midfielder. But when you're watching this world cup, who do you look at and go, that is some kind of physical specimen um for their purpose i probably if i'm honest i probably haven't seen enough of all of the games to really pull one player out i watched obviously i've watched um i've watched the england and usa game the other day um you know the interpretation of the result for some but what i really enjoyed watching was just how the the intensity of the game the intensity of the game is, is brilliant to see all the way through the game. Um, and it's also been really good to see some upsets as well, mm. which I think is great because it goes against everything, everything that we think we know again as well. So on paper, you know, you look at, you look at a team and you think the, the, what the result is. And I think that's what makes the performance challenge so much more interesting. Um, is that we don't know because it would be really boring if we did know, wouldn't it? Mm. <laughs> um, but in terms of like individual players, I probably are probably not best place to actually pick any out right now. I just mm. pick all the English players out probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I always find from a from a non sort of soccer football fan perspective that it's the one sport that seems to always 
bring up the odd surprise. You know, you don't, the form book doesn't necessarily always seem to work in, in football. Uh, whereas most sports you can predict, you know, normally you can predict a result fairly well, but in football, it seems to vary a lot, which I guess is what makes it exciting. Why people are so drawn to the, to the sport itself. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like one of the differences in, in rugby, if you're physically dominant, you're not losing more than yeah. one in a hundred matches, you know, you're so, mm. If you have parity, other things start to matter. But in football, you can actually have less. Well, it's, you you can actually not have parity in one domain, but but achieve it in another domain, and then potentially be superior in that domain. So, mm. Nick said it earlier. There's so many ways to win. Yeah. Plus, one goal make, decides the game. Yeah. I mean, I watched Costa Rica, Japan, and they had I reckon one shot and target. They beat them one 0 Yeah. So, yeah. The, Ex- exactly yeah. that. Exactly that. You can dominate the game. You can have the most shots on target by a long way and you can still lose. Yeah. So when you said you watched the US-England uh, match and you, and you just appreciate the intensity, are you talking, what, what do you think it is? I'm always interested in the mind of people who look at it with different perspectives. What is it that tells you this is intense? So when I look at it, and, and obviously England probably went in as, as favourites to win that game, and I think they probably didn't have the success that they wanted to, to have in that game in terms of winning it. But yet to see uh, to see players still when they're out of possession and to see the ebb and flow of the game as well. So the first part of the game, England were probably more dominant and then the USA came back into it. And the, the game ebbs and flows like all games do. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see the way that the players were just continuously... Um, aggressively pressing, aggressively trying to get the ball back, um, working hard for their teammates. You know, again, seeing, you know, like Harry Kane, you mentioned Harry Kane earlier, just some of the positions that he was coming up in, it was like, well, how did he get from there to there <laughs> so mm. quickly? Um, and I, I just really, really appreciating, you know, when you see good athletes in any sport and you've watched the sport for a bit, you just really appreciate what they're doing. Mm. Um, I think the one thing that you don't get on TV, which you do get when it's live, and especially when you're around training sessions when there's no there's no um, no fans, is you probably don't appreciate actually the the stuff that can't be measured, and that's like the contacts. Like obviously, it's nothing like rugby where you're running head on into someone, um, but you know the contacts that the players make and and the, the physical duels are are not insignificant. Um, mm. And, you you know, sometimes you, you need to be there live to hear that as well. Uh, yeah. And that's maybe an area in the future that there might be something that could be better measured um, and around the demands of those because it's like the, the conundrum we had in, in, in rugby. You know, you know, when you do a, a live scrum, for example, practice session, you know, all the numbers are coming back as, as zeros. Yeah, yeah. Off, your, off your GPS. Yeah. But you look at the players and it's definitely not a zero session, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, the reason I asked is um, I'll sometimes be watching a game and a commentator will say that, you know, Team X looks really flat today. Yeah. And I, and I don't, you say, I don't understand what he means. I don't know what he's looking at when he says that because it might be that tactically they're not trying to win the ball back aggressively and, and that's the only thing he's looking at. And so... I'm always interested in how people can judge whether a team looks like they're intense or not and what the me- the best metric is to say that was an intense game. You know, I mean, the data point from rugby is the 
I forget which World Cup it was, but Australia once beat Uruguay like 150 something nil or three, like a complete like annihilation. That was the most that those players ran in any match in about five years. The Australian players, and they came off the field absolutely exhausted. Yeah, but it was an easy game, mm. right? But hang on, it was it. And so I'm always interested, like what what am I not seeing when someone says they look flat or it's intense? It's always curious to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of the time, those fi- the finals, you know, in the, in, in the World Cup now, when we get to the knockout, they will often be very boring matches to watch. But the players on the field are at the very limit. It's not slow. It looks like it is, though. Why? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> and that, and that's, like, that's, a, that's an interesting point, you know, like, what, are they play in every four days? You know, yeah, the, density, yeah. the density of the games, like, to them, you know, when you're in a game... I think partly as well, the, the thing that, that I highlighted was, was the mentality of that because they're quite mm. clearly in a game where they've, they've not had success. They've not necessarily had a lot of goal-scoring opportunities in the final third, but yet still they're working incredib- incredibly hard. Like it's easy to get, you know, from a, from a mental perspective, it's easy to get despondent with that, with that. but yet still they're, they're putting it on the line, they're putting their body on the line to try and win that ball back and, and stay in the game and win it. Mm. Um, and yeah, that, like the example you just gave of rugby, I, I had we had a similar example. Preseason game, and scored scored a scored a hell of a lot, and the, the boys come off the pitch and they're absolutely exhausted. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick Chad, it's been a fascinating discussion. I can tell you, I, I thought I'd learn at least double what I knew about soccer, and I, I, I keep on calling it soccer, but uh, I've learned more about football in the last uh, hour than I've known before, so thank you very much for that, and it's, I think what's great is that you have this unique perspective, having had worked with other sports as well, so you understand that there are different challenges and there are differences in that sport, so thank you very much for your time. No, thank you for having me, really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.